Well, we are resuming our study of Paul's letter to Titus this morning after about a three-week break. So please join me there in your Bibles at Paul's letter to Titus. Paul, in writing to Titus, Titus, who Paul left on the island of Crete in order to revitalize and reform the churches on the island, writes explicitly to Titus in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, explicitly stating why Titus is there. Titus has a mission to fulfill, a specific purpose that Paul wants Titus to complete. Titus chapter 1 verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul wanted Titus to make sure that the churches were grounded in the gospel and that they were being continually transformed by gospel truth and gospel power. And so the theme we've been using for this short letter is Titus, the gospel-transformed church. After the opening lines of customary greeting and introduction in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of Titus, these verses that really serve as an overview of the whole letter, foreshadowing much of what Paul is going to cover, Paul launches into the body of the letter here in verse 5 with what I just read to you. And in just a few moments, we're going to begin our reading right there in verse 5, even though we're going to focus our attention on chapter 2 and verse 2. I want to help you remember this morning where we've been, a little bit of what we've covered so far as Paul has laid out the requirements for leadership in Christ's church and has warned about the dangers of false teachers and unqualified leadership within Christ's church. So we're going to focus this morning really on one verse, Titus chapter 2 and verse 2. But before we do that, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 5, refresh ourselves on some of the context that leads up to our focus On chapter 2 and verse 2. So join me in your Bibles, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. All right, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. That's where I'm going to begin the reading, but we're going to focus in this morning on chapter 2 and verse 2. So, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The Apostle Paul writing to Titus says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, 
who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach, and for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. May God grant us the faith to believe and obey all that he has written. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, which continues to inform us and transform us. And we're asking for that mind renewal this morning that would not just cause us to know more, but that would cause us to be more like Christ. So we pray, Lord, that you would indeed challenge us all, and especially those of us who are older men, to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in perseverance. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, and we know that it will be for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The churches around Crete were too often more influenced by their surrounding culture than they were by the gospel. They had leaders who reflected more the spirit of the age than the spirit of God. Many of these congregations had patterned their lives after the customs of the world more so than they did the commands of Christ. Crete was a tough mission field. Citizens of the Isle of Crete were notorious for their immoral behavior. And Paul made mention of this infamous reputation in chapter 1. We just read it, but let me remind you. Titus chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. One of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a true testimony. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. This island reputation for immorality in general and lying in particular was so widely understood that to cretinize became synonymous with lying. And sadly, the church looked far too much like the pagan culture that surrounded it. And the result of all this was a compromised church a compromised church, a church made up of believers, yes, but also made up of ungodly, unqualified leaders. Leaders who were teaching fables and falsehoods all for the sake of sordid gain. 
And when there is error and ungodliness in the pulpit, you can be sure that there will be error and ungodliness in the pew. The church will never rise above the level of its leadership. And so that is precisely where Paul focuses his first strategic wave of reform for the churches on Crete, laying out the character requirements for leadership in Christ's church in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Elder qualifications. And as we looked at that, we said, really, it's just a description of what a mature Christian looks like in most every instance. It's what it looks like to be a mature Christian. You should have mature Christians leading Christ's church. Revolutionary idea. But it's what they needed to hear. Paul then warns Titus and the churches about the dangers of false teachers and of unbelievers who have somehow crept into the churches and they've somehow taken positions of leadership and teaching and influence within the churches. And these unbelievers were having a predictably corrosive effect upon the church. And as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 11, they were upsetting and wreaking havoc upon whole families by their false teaching and by their poor examples. Then in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul calls Titus to a countercultural ministry of teaching sound doctrine. Sound doctrinal preaching and teaching that is centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ is the prescription for what ails the church. It's always the prescription. What the church needs more of is sound doctrine and gospel preaching. Not less. It is the gospel that is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And it is the power of the gospel that continues to transform us into Christ's likeness and strengthen us as a church. So having pointed out the problems in the churches, Paul points his powerful pen now toward the home. From a focus on the churches to a focus on the home. He does so beginning in chapter 2 and verse 2, and he carries that on through verse 10 of chapter 2. A focus on the home. He exhorts the older men first. He then addresses older women. Then younger women. Then young men. And finally, household servants. Paul has a word for every member of the Christian household. This morning in Titus chapter 2 and verse 2, we're going to observe together six gospel-centered qualities for all Christians to cultivate in their lives, but especially older men. Paul begins addressing the issues that were happening in the homes and that were therefore carrying over into the church as homes and families gathered together on Sundays. He begins by addressing older men. Now, all six of these characteristics should be growing realities in every Christian's life. 
It's a little bit like the elder qualification list. Pretty much most of those, with a couple of exceptions, are things we all ought to be pursuing because they are marks of spiritual maturity, marks of Christian maturity. And so it is here with these six characteristics. Though they apply first and foremost to older men within the church, they apply in a second way to all of us as Christians. These are marks of a gospel-transformed life. A number of them are listed by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, as fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit supernaturally produces within us. This is the fruit that is born by a life that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these are not qualities and characteristics that are relegated to just one segment of the church. But they are important qualities, nonetheless, that should be a growing part of older men's lives. So everyone who claims the name of Christ has an assignment to see these things growing and increasing in their lives, but especially older men. So why, if these things are applicable to everyone... Why the special emphasis here on older men? Why was it so important for older men to be characterized by these basic Christian graces? Well, in the Roman household, the older man of the household served as the paterfamilias. Any paterfamiliases in here today? Raise your hand if you're a paterfamilias. You say, I don't really know what that is. I'm not sure I want to raise my hand. All right, I'm it. I'm the only one. Well, you are a paterfamilias if you are an older man in your household. You say, well, what's older? What do you call older? We're going to get into that. Hang on. The paterfamilias in the Roman household was usually the oldest living male in the family, such as the father or the grandfather. As the paterfamilias, he had, under Roman tradition and law, he had legal and social control over the entire household, including his wife, children, and slaves. His rights and responsibilities as a leader of the home included even the power of life and death. He had the authority to arrange marriages. I give a hearty amen to that. He had the authority to arrange marriages, control the property and finances of the household, and the ability to make legal decisions on behalf of the family. He also was responsible for the religious life of the family, and so he served as a kind of priest to the family. This is all under Roman traditional household management. This is how it was for Roman culture. This is how the Cretans lived. This is what they knew before they ever knew anything of Jesus. This is how they lived. This is how they understood the operation of the home. This was the traditional Roman understanding of the older man's role within the household. Given that older male leadership in the home was the norm, both in traditional Roman household custom as well as in the Christian household, 
men are called on to lead their homes, to lead their wives, to lead their children, not exactly in the same way as the Roman tradition, but in overlapping ways, in some parallel ways, Paul saw, Paul saw the strategic importance of this role for the well-being of the Christian home. And so he begins this instruction by directing his words toward the older man, the paterfamilias of the home. As godly leaders were important for the life and health of the local church, so godly leadership is vital for the life and health of the Christian family. Right? Does anyone believe that here? Yes. Godly leadership is vital for the life and health of a Christian family. So Paul begins his instruction on the Christian home by addressing older men. Now, who are these older men? Well, the translation older men is actually somewhat of a diplomatic translation of the more literal old men. Older just sounds better, doesn't it? It sounds nicer. It sounds softer. Am I older? Yes, I'm older than a three-year-old. Yes, I'm older. But actually, it's old men. Old men. Now, you young bucks out there are going, ah, this sermon's not for me. I've been excluded. Well, not so fast. Who are these older men? The reality is no one wants to, seems to want to get old or be counted among the elderly. Hardly anyone wants that. It's almost like a, an issue of shame in our culture to be old. We live in a culture that idolizes youth. The only time you really see old people in commercials is when they've fallen and can't get up. (laughs) When they're trying to sell you medications. And even then, these old people are somehow hang gliding and surfing. (laughs) That if you take this medication, you too can hang glide and surf. With all of your free time. Who are these people? Who are these old people? In our culture, to be young is equated with cool. To be old is equated with drool. (laughs) But the Bible teaches us that old age is actually a glory. It's a value. I heard that old person. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. With old age often comes wisdom. And with wisdom often comes exemplary character. And these things truly are worthy of honor. And we should not buy into the the lie that the only cool people are young people. The only people of value are the people of youth. But sadly, we also know that old age is no guarantee of wisdom. 
or of character. We've all known older men who seemed to miss the boat when it came to wisdom and exemplary character. It's like the old saying, women rarely admit their age, men rarely act their age. It's funny because it's true. So Paul addresses this strategic group within the church in terms of the Christian home and the Christian family. Older men are the tip of the spear. Older men are running point. Older men are leading the way and setting the pace and setting the example. Either in a good way or in a bad way. So Paul addresses them first. And he calls the men to grow in Christian maturity. Now what age group is encompassed in this term older men? And this is where I rake you all in. (laughs) The average lifespan in Paul's day was between 25 and 30 years old. We've got it pretty good. So if you were in your late 20s, early 30s, you were already well over the hill. And nearing the end of your life expectancy. So a guy in his mid to late 30s would have been ranked among the old timers. So Paul just swept a whole bunch of you who thought this sermon was for someone else. In reality, though, Paul probably has in mind those who are a bit older than just people in their their 20s and 30s. He used the same term to describe himself in Philemon verse 9 when he was around the age of 60. Paul probably has in mind those who are 40 years old and up. 40 years old and up. That's probably kind of his target audience, who he's thinking of when he writes these words. And Paul says that these older men are to be. This is what you are to be. This is what you as a man are to be aiming for. This is what you as a man living out the role of paterfamilias should be looking to be in the context of a Christian home. Not just a Roman home, but a Christian home. This is what you're to be intentional about building into your life. Now it's important to realize that these characteristics are stimulated and roused in the life of the Christian by the gospel. The gospel, this isn't just a call to morality. This isn't just moralism warmed over by Paul. He's rooting and grounding all of this as implications that come directly from gospel truth. How do I know that? Look with me down at Titus chapter 2, verse 10. He's just been addressing household servants or slaves. 
And he urges them to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Everything that Paul is going to talk about, about the Christian home, every member of the Christian household, everything he's going to call them to is all based, rooted on, and springs forth from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's empowered by the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. So when Paul in chapter 2 and verse 10 speaks of adorning the doctrine of God, putting it on, Adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. He's talking about living in such a way that reflects well upon the gospel. It is to live a life that is in keeping with the gospel message and testifies to gospel realities and the gospel's power to transform us into Christ-likeness. So he's not making a call to simply moralism and be nice and kind and you know, treat everyone fairly just because that's a nice thing to do. He's taking it all back to the gospel, which is what we always must do. Each of these biblical qualities are especially important as as men age. Because there is a tendency with older men to simply become grumpy old men. They've actually given it a diagnosis. Of course they have. It's called grumpy old man complex or irritable male syndrome. I'm not making this up. With middle age comes decreasing testosterone resulting in worsening mood and increasing irritability. It is clinically referred to as andropause or male menopause. Ladies, you're welcome. You can talk to your husbands about that this afternoon. Male menopause. So if you find yourself sitting on your porch and shouting, get off my lawn, you might be an older man. So what should all Christians But especially, what should all Christians, but especially male Christians, be cultivating in their lives? What does masculine maturity actually look like for the Christian? Paul is going to give us six qualities. All right, here we go. We haven't done one of them yet, in case you're trying to keep score at home. First of all, temperate, the gospel-centered quality of wise moderation. The gospel-centered quality of wise moderation. Temperance and moderation lead the list. Perhaps that shouldn't be surprising that this would be the quality to lead the list. Crete was, after all, an island 
whose inhabitants were notorious for acting like evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Paul is issuing a call for them to live differently, to make different choices because of gospel realities, to not live like evil beasts, to not live like lazy gluttons. The biblical term temperance, first and foremost, applies to moderation in drinking wine and other forms of alcohol. And that was certainly an important instruction that cut against the grain of Roman culture in general and certainly Cretan culture in particular. Cretans loved their liquor. In popular Cretan culture, older men in particular often participated in what was called a public mess. And it was a mess. Think mess hall. That's what it means by public mess. A public mess was what we might call something like a men's supper club. University of Cambridge historian Bruce Winter cites the ancient historian Plutarch who states that each of the 15 members of these supper clubs would donate a bushel of barley Eight gallons of wine, five pounds of figs, two and a half pounds of cheese. These men would then gather together and consume 120 gallons of wine at these dinners. Young boys were invited to attend these gatherings in order to benefit from the discussion, albeit slurred discussion, of these adult men. Excessive drinking, both at the meals and afterwards, often went hand in hand with gross immorality. They would call them after dinners. So you would gorge yourself on food, you would inebriate yourself on wine, and then you would bring in the ladies and others. And this was typical. It is into this widespread Cretan culture of excess that Paul calls Christian men to temperance. Wise moderation in food and drink and other areas of life. While the culture around them may have accepted drunkenness, gluttony, and sexual immorality of all kinds, the Christian man is to be a model of wise moderation. Robert Yarbrough, in his helpful commentary, defines the term temperate to mean wise moderation in matters that sinful humans frequently pursue to excess. So you can fill in the blank of what sinful humans tend to pursue to excess. Christians are called to something different. Wise moderation, temperance. Now, wise moderation doesn't mean that you can't enjoy a glass of wine or a good meal. But it does mean that we're to be a people who exemplifies such wise moderation in the fulfilling of our appetites. We don't let our appetites rule us. An older man who is a slave to his appetites is a fool, not worthy to be followed or emulated. So Paul says, grow in temperance. 
grow in self-denial, in self-restraint, in self-discipline, in wise moderation. Jesus died for us so that we would no longer be the slaves of sin or the slaves of our appetites. So go back to the gospel and find your true freedom there. Freedom to say no to sinful excess. That's the first thing. All of us ought to build into our lives, but especially older men. Got to get a handle on that. Secondly, older men are to be dignified. This is the gospel-centered quality of being worthy of respect. Literally, this word dignified means grave or serious. The idea is that of being worthy of respect. There's a certain gravitas of your life. It conveys the idea of a seriousness of purpose, a a godly dignity, a life worth emulating, of being a good example to follow. Each of us as Christians, but especially as Christian men, ought to be seeking to live lives that are worthy of respect, worthy of emulation. We ought to make it our aim, certainly as Christians, but especially as Christian men, to be able to say, along with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my life as I'm following Christ. To the degree that I'm following Christ, you follow me and do what I do. Which begs the question, to what degree are you following Christ? Are you a good example of what it means to be a Christian? Is your life worthy of respect? Is your life a life worth emulating? Would you like your sons to grow up and be like you? In the way they follow Christ? Would you like your grandchildren to grow up and be like you? In the way that they follow and pursue Christ? I hope you can say yes to that. If you feel like you can't, it is never too late. Gospel power, gospel transforming power has no expiration date. It's never too late to grow, it's never too late to mature. Some of you grew up in homes, you didn't stand a chance without the Lord. But if the Lord is on our side, everything is possible. It's never too late to grow in Christian dignity. Thirdly, be sensible. We need sensible men. Thought I'd get an amen from the ladies on that one. but (laughs) Sensible, the gospel-centered quality of self-control. 
Sensible behavior is the opposite of foolish behavior, reckless behavior, ridiculous behavior. It's the opposite of notorious Cretan behavior. Lying and drinking and acting like an animal. Being a lazy glutton. It is to live life prudently, thoughtfully, intentionally. Exercising self-control over your desires and your impulses. And you can see here that sensibility and temperance overlap quite a bit. So that the the first quality and the third quality aren't entirely different, but they are coming at it from a slightly different angle. This sensible quality is a measured restraint in all things. Measured restraint. Over your words, over your anger, over your responses, over your appetites. It's a measured restraint in all things. The idea here is to live a life of steady level-headedness. A life of discretion. A life of prudence. This sensible self-control comes as a direct result of the work of the gospel in our lives. Again, look at Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, rather, and to live sensibly. Same word. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but instead to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You're saying to no to some things and yes to other things, very intentionally. And it all springs from and flows from the gospel. Paul understood well the necessity of self-control. And he wrote to the Corinthians about it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Run to win. Be serious about it. It's time to be serious about these things, men. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. We're doing it because of the gospel, because of gospel promises and gospel realities and a gospel future that we know includes reward and eternal life. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Men, let's step up. Let's live sensibly. Let's shake off the world around us and its values and its temptations 
and run to win. Fourthly, men are to be sound in the faith, which is the gospel-centered quality of mature faith. These next three qualities are all related by the word sound. Sound in. Sound in faith. Sound in love. Sound in perseverance. Soundness here has the idea of health or maturity. It is to be free of disease and impurity. And it was used in chapter 2 and verse 1 of sound doctrine. Doctrine that is true and right and healthy. Not infected by the Cretan beliefs and practices of self-gratification and self-indulgence. And so the Christian in general, and the older man in particular, is to evidence a soundness in faith, a soundness in love, and a soundness in perseverance. To be sound in faith is to be a person of great faith in God. It is to trust in God in the face of uncertainty. It is to resolve to believe that God has what is best for me. Whatever may be happening, God is at the helm. He is ordering this for my good and for His glory. And it's leading your family in that way. Sound in the faith. It is a firm reliance upon the truth that God has revealed. And it is a commitment to believe and obey all that He has revealed. We are to be examples of faith that the next generation can look to and say, may God grant me that kind of faith. Does your life manifest a mature faith? A sound faith? Does your speech manifest a mature faith? Are you always grumbling and complaining? Does your... Face evidence a mature faith. I said your face. Or do you constantly look like you've been dining on lemons? Grumpy and foul. Has God made promises to you? Older man, has God made promises to you? Believe it. Trust it. Sound in faith. Fifth, sound in love. The gospel-centered quality of a healthy love. This love, of course, is agape love. It is that love of self-sacrifice. And love is the outworking of faith. Paul links faith and love together inseparably in Galatians 5, 6. In Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith working through Love. Faith working through love. As you grow in faith, you will grow in love. As your faith ebbs, so will your love of others. We tend to value gifts and abilities in our culture more than godly character. But the Bible consistently tells us that godly character, and in particular, 
Love is far more important than gifts or abilities. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just annoying without love. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. You can have all the faith in the world, but if it's not accompanied by love, it doesn't count. It doesn't help. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love, he says, is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. But love never fails. Love must be central to the life of the head of the house. A self-sacrificial servant mentality. And here's where it's really rubbing against Roman tradition. The pater familius, he might love or he might not love, but it really doesn't matter. He's the pater familius. Paul says, no, no, it matters. It's central. Men grow in love and sacrificial service of others. Sixth and finally, sound and perseverance. The gospel-centered quality of hopeful endurance. Perseverance is hope-filled endurance. You persevere because you have hope that helps you to endure, which causes you to persevere. Pastor Micah, where are you? Hello? Hello? Right there. All right. Pastor Micah's great-grandpa was a well-known and published Greek scholar. Did you know that? Most of you probably didn't know that. His name was D. Edmund Hebert. And I have all of his commentaries. and They're excellent. Very accessible, too. If you want to get great commentaries on the New Testament by D. Edmund Heberts. I was given a treasured copy of one of his Greek New Testaments by Micah's dad, Mark. Well, listen to how Micah's great-grandpa described this quality of perseverance, all right? It's from D. Edmund Hebert. He says, Perseverance pictures that brave patience with which the Christian endures the trials and tribulations of life without losing heart or courage. That's good. That brave patience 
with which the Christian endures the trials and tribulations of life without losing heart or courage. But then Grandpa Hebert, he goes on to make this very astute observation about old age. Listen to what he says. Such perseverance is very needful in old age with its increasing infirmities, disappointed aspirations, and growing loneliness. These are the challenges of being older. Increasing infirmities, disappointed aspirations, growing loneliness. Into such a life and into such challenges, perseverance is needed. Hopeful endurance is needed. Growing older isn't easy. Not only does there come with it aches and pains, decreased mobility, increased doctor visits, but there's also the perspective you may have gained of having lived many years in a broken and sinful world. And that can often leave us with scars and a very bitter taste in our mouths. But there is no place for hopeless pessimism in the life of the Christian. There is no place for hopeless pessimism in the life of the Christian. There is no place for constant, curmudgeonly crankiness for the Christian. Some of us need to repent of constant, curmudgeonly crankiness. Some of us wear it as a badge of honor. Some of us think, well, that's just my, that's just who I am. No, it's not. It's who you've made yourself to be, but it's not who the Lord has made you to be. Perseverance springs from hope, and hope springs from faith in the Lord's goodness, His sovereignty, and His good promises. Perseverance doesn't just mean making it to the end with a permanent scowl on your face and crossing the finish line. It means finishing the race with the joyful knowledge that your troubles are nearly at an end. And your rest and reward is closer now than it ever has been. The oldest saints should be the most joyful saints. They've walked with the Lord the longest. They've seen His faithfulness the longest. And they have the shortest time left. So cultivate hopeful endurance, older man. Rooted and grounded in the good promises of God that come to us in the gospel. Now more than ever. Our culture, our churches, and our homes need masculine maturity. Godly men who say no to excesses, whose lives are worthy of emulation, who exercise self-control, who demonstrate a mature faith, a healthy love, and a hopeful, joyful endurance. May the Lord, by His grace and by His Spirit and by our effort, Increasingly make it so among us. That's who I want to be. 
I hope and I pray and I trust that it's who you want to be as well. May the Lord make it so. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you are mindful of us that we are but dust, that we are all unprofitable servants, that we fail in many ways, that we sin and we go astray and we are selfish and we are self-gratifying and we are prideful. And yet, Lord, your gospel promises salvation and complete forgiveness for all of those things simply by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, thank you for your mercy and grace that covers a multitude of sins. That your grace is greater than all our sins. That Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is mighty to save. With you there is forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. But thank you that you have saved us not only from an eternity in hell, but you have saved us from being slaves of sin. From going on in life without ever being changed, without ever growing or becoming more and more like Christ. You have saved us from that possibility. For you have given us your spirit within You have caused us to be born again with new desires, a new hatred of sin, new powers for growth. Lord, we pray that we would grow in these Christian graces, that we would grow in Christ-likeness, And especially that we as men, especially we as older men who are running point, who are setting the pace, who are setting the example, that we would actually set a good example, a Christ-like example. Not a perfect one, but a a Christ-like one. Help us, Lord, as we seek to do that. Grow us, Lord, we pray, by your Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.